Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the peace that you speak to us. We receive it. And we ask, Lord, that as you appeared and spoke and revealed yourself to your disciples there in those rooms, that you might appear and show yourself to us here in this room. Any of my words that are not your words, God, may they fall to the ground, blow away, and never be forgotten, never be remembered. May your word, Lord, remain, and may it never be forgotten. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and happy Easter tide to you. Now, I know there's one person in our church whose arm would shoot up incredibly fast at this question, but are there any board game nerds in our church? (laughs) A few? All right, a few. We have our fair share here at Living Faith. Um, My wife would tell you I'm not a, a, a huge board game person. I kind of endure them so that everybody else can have a good time. There are a few board games that I do enjoy playing, Uh, My wife and I, we started dating, and we learned a game together, and it became kind of the staple of our dating relationship in our marriage. It's called Settlers of Catan. We play that a lot with our friends. We play that a lot with my parents, actually. We went to college in the same town that my parents lived, and we would play this game with them almost every week. Now, there's another game that I bet probably none of you have played. Maybe you have. But I was introduced to it around the same time. It's called Wise and Otherwise. Anyone played that game? I figured not. Now, um, I don't think this was the most popular game in the world. Case in point, none of you have played it. Uh, additionally, you can't buy the game anymore, right? They, they phased out those games that, that weren't hits. Now, I really like this game, though. I, I think this is one of the best ones. Essentially, this game is full of hundreds, maybe thousands, thousands of cards with proverbs on them. Proverbs from various cultures around the world, all right? Various cultures, various nations, some really, really old and some uh, relatively modern. Uh, For example, there would be a card and there would be something written on it like this. There's an old Hungarian saying, better a sparrow today than a buzzard tomorrow. What that means, I don't know. Reflect on that. (laughs) Or uh, there's an old Punjabi saying, When the house is built, the carpenter is forgotten. I think I understand that one a bit more. Well, what happens in this game, and that's not the whole game. We don't just sit around reading Proverbs, I promise. It's better than that. What happens is that one player uh, chooses a proverb to read, and uh, he reads it to the rest of the players sitting in a circle. But what happens is the person reading the proverb only reads the first half of it. For example, there's an old Norwegian saying... First, think of bread, and then of dot, dot, dot. The other players then have to invent, in a matter of minutes, the second half of that proverb. And what they do is they they write it down anonymously on pieces of paper, and after they do that, they give it to the first player, and the player then goes through and reads off all those proverbs that have been completed by the other players, along with the actual original proverb. And things get pretty funny pretty quickly, especially if you have a, a large you know, spectrum of, of ages represented in the proverbial wisdom. 
The way you get points in the game is by either guessing the original proverb out of you know, all the false proverbs or by deceiving other people into believing that your proverb was the original. And I guess that's, that's the great irony of the game. You're supposed to come up with something that sounds so wise that you fool everybody else around you. And I just think that's a lot of fun. <laughs> By the way, if you can correctly uh, fill in that Norwegian proverb, first think of bread and then of dot, 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 I'll give you a prize. Just the first person to email me, you've got three days. Game on. <laughs> I'm serious. Br- bring it on. No cheating. All right. This morning, why, why do I bring up wise and otherwise? This morning, we're going to be talking about the theme of wisdom. The theme of wisdom. And to do that, we're going to zoom in on just one half verse from the psalm appointed for today. Psalm 111, verse 10, just part A. Here it is. There's an old Hebrew saying. The fear of the Lord is dot, dot, dot. The beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom often comes up inside the church, and that makes sense because the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. Grab a lexicon. Look up how often. It's pretty often. In fact, considering how much the Bible has to say about wisdom, I actually think it should be coming up a great deal more in the church than it does. Historically, I think it did. The truth is that in our societal moment, kind of right now here in the U.S. at this time in the 21st century, we might not be sure why we should care about wisdom. We have smartphones, after all. Wisdom isn't exactly in vogue. It doesn't always feel like a felt need. And as a result, wisdom doesn't sell very well. Case in point, a board game called Wise and Otherwise. In fact, culturally, wisdom sometimes feels like the enemy. Wisdom is the killjoy. It's it's the, the safe and predictable option. It's the thing that we actually need to be liberated from in order to have a fulfilling life. And yet, much to the contrary, the way that Scripture talks about wisdom is that it's the thing we need just about more than anything else. For example, Proverbs 8, verse 11, for wisdom is better than jewels. Do you scoff at that? I kind of do. Better than jewels? Wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Is that not hyperbole? Now, in the last few months, wisdom has received some airtime here at Living Faith. In the Lenten series on parables, Father Bob preached about the parable of the wise and the foolish builder, the guy with the rock and the guy with the sand. In the sermon series on spiritual gifts back in January and February, I mentioned the spiritual gift of wisdom. Back at Epiphany, we heard about three men who were wise, who came to visit the infant Jesus Yet, in any of those mentions of wisdom, we've not really gotten to the bottom of what wisdom is. What is it? What made those three men wise? That's what I hope to uncover today, using Psalm 111 as a springboard. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This verse, in particular, it doesn't tell us what wisdom is. It really doesn't. 
What this verse tells us is where wisdom comes from. And so that's where we'll start. We are told wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Is that self-explanatory? I don't, I don't think that it is. What, what is the fear of the Lord? The phrase, the fear of the Lord, is a really common phrase in the Old Testament. And it's something which is prescribed. It's something that people need. The, the, the heroes of the Old Testament, despite all of their flaws and all of their weaknesses, if they have something in common, it's that they feared the Lord. We also see that phrase a few times in the New Testament. For example, we read this back in the sermon series on Acts last summer, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, where it says the church was growing as it walked in the fear of the Lord. Now, does that sound like good advice to you, to walk in fear? Does it? If there's anything you should do in your life, walk in fear. Is that what we teach our kids about how they should face each day fearfully? Do do therapists prescribe more fear in your life, patient? We, We don't tend to think of fear as a good thing, right? It's something we need to overcome, something to avoid, something you might need a prescription medicine for. We're often right about that. It's not like fear is an inherently good thing. And so, because we have this this belief about fear, which often is true, what happens is when we come to the scriptures and we see that phrase, the fear of the Lord, sometimes we have this tendency to euphemize it a bit. It can be said that this fear of the Lord isn't actually fear. It can't mean that. It can't actually mean that we would be afraid of God. Instead, it means something like reverence and honor for God. Now, there's a real sense in which that's exactly what the fear of the Lord means, The early church wasn't growing because it oriented to God like I orient to heights, meaning I get nauseous and I avoid them as much as possible. The church was growing because it has a zealous reverence for what God was doing in their midst, right? So reverence fits the bill for the fear of the Lord, but at the same time, I've never been quite comfortable with the explanation of the fear of the Lord just as reverence. Because I think what happens is it's just kind of filing down the sharp edge of that word. In fact, remember the account of Ananias and Sapphira last summer, Acts chapter 5. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied about how generous they actually were. And what happened? God struck them down, dead. And here's what verse 11 says. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Do you think that's just reverence? I think not. The Greek word there in that verse for fear, and everywhere else in the New Testament, or at least predominantly, is the word phobos. We know that, right? It's where we get the word phobia. What is phobia? (laughs) To be afraid of, not to reverence. Likewise, the Hebrew word for fear in the Old Testament is yare, and it means literally, you guessed it, to be afraid of. To be afraid of. So, are we supposed to be afraid of God or not? I'd like you to imagine a magnet. Magnet. All right, and it's a, it's a rectangle. You know, picture like a domino, uh, if you can picture what that is. I think that's relatively universally known, a domino. So you have... Actually, not just one of these magnets shaped like a domino, but, but two of them, all right? And if you took these two magnets, one in each of your hands, 
and then you push them close together like a sandwich, they're going to attract one another. Right? They're going to click together, and depending on how strong these magnets are, you might have a hard time pulling them apart. But if you flip one of those magnets around and then stick them close together again, what happens? They don't attract one another. In fact, they repel one another. They're pushed apart. Now, I could take you back to high school physics where you learn that magnets have a north pole and a south pole, but I wouldn't wish high school physics on my worst enemy, and so I'll spare you that. Instead, let me just suggest the fear of the Lord is like this. It is both an attracting force and a repelling force. On the one hand, the fear of the Lord causes us to understand how good and gracious God is. And we are irresistibly attracted to that. But on the other hand, the fear of the Lord causes us to understand how holy and mighty is the God of the universe. How other, how dangerous. And we know we shouldn't get too close. Old Testament theologian Alan Ross describes this, saying this, The fear of the Lord describes those people who are obedient worshipers. In reverence and respect, they shrink back from God the Almighty, the consuming fire and the judge of all the world. But they cannot help but be drawn closer in adoration and wonder to their Redeemer. That's the fear of the Lord. Dr. Ross was actually my, my Hebrew professor in seminary, and his Hebrew 3 class was by far the hardest class I've ever taken. And ironically, this fear of the Lord dynamic was the reputation that Dr. Ross had at the seminary. You, you really wanted to take his class because you know you were going to learn a lot, but man, you are terrified of him. And that's the man walking around the halls, and everybody felt that way. Ultimately, the scriptures teach that the fear of the Lord is a posture. It's a posture towards God, which is indicative of those who put their faith in Him and also obey Him, knowing that God expects both. He's worthy of both. And the scripture teaches that that kind of fear is a very good thing. A very good thing. In the Bible, there are all sorts of genres of literature. And there's a genre called wisdom literature. The most significant example of this is the book of Proverbs. Right? It's probably, if I asked you, where would you get wisdom in the, in the Bible, you'd say Proverbs. Also included in that are Ecclesiastes and the book of Job. In the New Testament, there's a, a really good case that James would qualify as wisdom literature, out of all the books in Scripture, these four books are especially concerned with imparting wisdom to the people of God. Now, while we have not yet discussed what wisdom is, haven't answered that question yet, we can first acknowledge that wisdom begins with God. Each of those four books would say something like that. For example, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
Now, the guy who wrote that verse in Proverbs and the majority of the book of Proverbs, along with several other books, is none other than Solomon, the son of David. A well-known story about Solomon that we, we hear in the book of 1 Kings is that at the beginning of his reign, his reign as king over Israel, God appeared to him in a dream. And in the dream, God told Solomon he would give Solomon whatever it was that he asked. So what do you want, Solomon? And surprisingly, what Solomon asked for more of was not more wealth, not more power, and not more sex, not immortality. He asked for wisdom. Give me more wisdom, God. And to this request, which pleased God greatly, 1 Kings 4, verses 29 to 30 says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. We are told that the queen of Sheba is said to have traveled all the way to Israel just to listen to what Solomon had to say. In this narrative about Solomon, we can see pretty clearly that wisdom comes from God, right? Wisdom didn't get his, or Solomon didn't get his wisdom from anywhere else, but also we see that God is pretty eager and happy to supply wisdom to those who, particularly to those who ask for it. James, the brother of Jesus, says pretty much this thing in James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, be like Solomon. Let him ask God for it, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask for it. Now, God can give wisdom however he pleases. I don't know exactly the mechanics of how God gave that wisdom to Solomon, but what is clear is that no wisdom is communicated to human beings apart from one really important thing, and that's what we call revelation. Revelation. In other words, the, the way that God provides wisdom to those who ask for it is revelation. God reveals the wisdom to them. Now, there are many ways in which God reveals himself. The only way we can know anything about God is through revelation and likewise wisdom. So we, we know these things first and foremost through what is called general revelation which is the revelation of God in the created order, the created world. We can see things about God and God's intentions. But also through special revelation. So general revelation and special revelation, which is primarily the word of God, the revelation of scripture in which God speaks more specifically about his character and about his actions and his plans for the world. So revelation matters. Wisdom comes from God, and it comes through revelation. What then is it? What is wisdom? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word used for wisdom is chokmah. Chokmah. Although wisdom goes hand in hand with knowledge and understanding, those two words, wisdom is not to be understood as just knowledge or just understanding. Instead, the meaning of wisdom, biblically speaking, is much more pointed than that. Wisdom means, scripturally, the ability 
to live your life well. Does that sound profound to you? I don't know. The ability to live your life well. To be wise is to know how to have a good life and to be good at it. Within wisdom, there is both the rational knowledge of life as it is, not as we might imagine it to be, but life as it is and how it works. There's that knowledge piece. But then, very importantly, secondarily, there is the practical skill at applying that truth to your life and then achieving what is good. So wisdom is kind of applied knowledge. It's the ability to be good at life. Anglican theologian J.I. Packer writes this, Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal, together with the surest means of attaining it. There's a lot there. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal, together with the surest means of attaining it. In the Greek of the New Testament, the word for wisdom is Sophia. You might have a friend named Sophie. Wisdom, Sophia. While this Greek word would have been understood very differently by the philosophers of Greece and of Rome, the New Testament understanding of that word, Sophia, is absolutely rooted to the heritage of Chokmah coming from the Old Testament, from the people of Israel. Although, I will say, as we'll see in just a moment, the New Testament does offer a new interpretation of what that Sophia actually is. Now, in both the Old and the New Testaments, wisdom is understood not just as something that God gives, that comes from God, but actually as an attribute of God. It's part of who God is. That actually makes sense of why wisdom comes from God, because wisdom is a part of God. Wisdom is God's character. Wisdom is God's thoughts, God's ways, God's design for creation, especially human beings made in God's image, meant to bear wisdom bodily and in the way that we live our lives. So we learn the way of wisdom by learning these things about God and then by applying those truths to our lives so that we have the kind of good life which God intends. It's the way of wisdom. There's a fascinating passage in Proverbs chapter 8. Many of you might have read this, which describes wisdom as a person. It's incredibly beautiful. The voice of wisdom says this in Proverbs 8, starting in verse 22. The Lord possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of his work. I was the first of his acts of old. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the firm skies above, when he assigned to the sea its limit, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in the inhabited world he created, and delighting in the children of men. 
wisdom. What's so significant about this chapter is that from it, we get the image of wisdom as the very way that God created all things. Now, why does that matter? Why is that profound? It's here I'd like to make a New Testament pivot. And I'd like to read one, uh, two passages, one from the Apostle John and one from the Apostle Paul. And they represent a more complete understanding of what that Proverbs 8 wisdom is. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Sound familiar? Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. While we've been talking about wisdom as something that comes from God and that is an attribute of God, turns out, biblically speaking, we are even closer to the heart of the matter to say that wisdom is God. Wisdom is the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about Jesus as wisdom incarnate, wisdom in human flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, he writes, Christ Jesus became for us wisdom from God. And again, in verse 24, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is it. Jesus, turns out, is the revelation of God's character and the revelation of God's thoughts and the revelation of God's ways and the revelation of God's design for creation, especially for human beings who bear God's image. And Jesus is the means by which God accomplishes this wise redemption which he has purposed. The idea of Jesus as wisdom was all over the writings of the church fathers. For example, take what Athanasius writes in the 4th century. He says, The only begotten Son, the wisdom of God, created the entire universe. Scripture says, You have made all things by your wisdom, and the earth is full of your creatures. Yet, simply to be, to exist, was not enough. God also wanted those creatures to be good. To be good. And that is why he was pleased that his own wisdom should descend to their level and impress upon them, each of them singly and upon all of them together, a restored resemblance to their maker. Now, Athanasius is saying very theologically, essentially, Jesus is the wisdom of God who was made incarnate from God so that we might actually know the wisdom that comes from God and embody it just like Jesus did. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus himself speaks about himself this way in Matthew chapter 12 when he says, the queen of Sheba, remember her? The queen of Sheba 
will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Wisdom incarnate is here, says Jesus. Those who neither seek nor listen to the wisdom that is Christ, the Bible has a name. Fools. Fools. That might be the worst thing to be called in the Bible. Maybe even worse than evil. One of the most striking things in the book of Proverbs is how it describes these two very different paths. Just two. We wish there were more, but there's just two. There's the way of wisdom, and there's the way of folly. The former leads to life, the latter leads to death. We had these two paths illustrated for us in the parable of the wise and the foolish builder, right? The wise builder built his house on the rock, and it withstood the storms. There was life there. And then the foolish builder built his house on the sand, and it did not withstand the storms. There was death there. Wisdom matters for everyone, whether you're Christian or not, because a life built on wisdom stands, and a life built on folly does not. Now, do you think in that parable that the foolish builder really thought that building his house on the sand was a good idea? Do you think? It's possible, but I don't think it's likely. You know, if so, he would just be an imbecile, right? He would be an ignorant fool, which is to say a second-degree fool, somebody who doesn't know what wisdom is and therefore doesn't do wisdom. But I think this guy probably knew what was wise. Father Bob kept telling to me, who builds their house on the sand? Who does that? Nobody does that, right? I think this guy actually knew it was idiocy to build on the sand. And yet, for any number of reasons, he chose to do it anyway. And this is what the Bible calls the worst kind of fool, a first-degree fool, the one who knows what wisdom is and chooses not to do it. Scripture not only makes a distinction between the sand of folly and the rock of wisdom, but it also makes a distinction between various kinds of wisdom. Namely, the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God, or what James calls the wisdom from above. Now, I want us to understand, in fact, I was having a conversation uh, much to this end this week with somebody who was on our property to talk about landscaping. We were talking about if anything in the world is wise... It belongs to God. It's God's. All truth is God's truth. God never intended all of our learning to come from Scripture. He just didn't. If there's truth outside of Scripture, it's God's. It's God's revelation. It's God's wisdom. No one has a corner on wisdom and truth except God. 
So the common sense that keeps you from running into traffic, that's the wisdom from above. As is the arithmetic of addition and subtraction and multiplication and division. God invented that. However, there are wisdoms in the world that are just disguised as truth. They're disguised as wisdom. There are philosophies and religions and worldviews and lifestyles and technologies and diets and techniques that claim to offer the good life and the path that leads to it. There are those who tell you that, that wisdom is actually found inside you. That if you'll just listen to your heart, you'll find the good life. And there are people around you and around me who are sages in this stuff. They're sages. The problem is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the wisdom of the world is folly with God. It's not actually wisdom. So don't be fooled. These things neither seek nor submit to wisdom itself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, for the people of God, or at least for those who claim to be, who desire to be the people of God, the singular question I'd like to pose for you today is this. Is wisdom a pursuit in your life? Perhaps better, is wisdom the pursuit in your life? Whether you think the answer is yes, or whether you know it's a hard no, there are four things, I think, that provide the scriptural path to wisdom. This is brief and concise, but it's a starting place. First of all, you understand that the life of wisdom is the Christ-centered life. They're one and the same. Christ is the wisdom from God, and therefore every pursuit of Christ is a pursuit of wisdom, and every pursuit of true wisdom is a pursuit of Christ. Second, you pray for wisdom. You've read the Bible, and it says, ask for it, and so you do. You ask not only that God would provide wisdom for your life, but that he would actually also provide you with a hunger for it. And that you would have a deep sense of value for it. More so than jewels or whatnot. Thirdly, after praying for wisdom and seeing it in Christ, you go looking for it. And you go looking for it in the place where, where it is to be found, and that is Revelation. So you go to Revelation. Did you know you have a choice about what kind of information to take in and how much of it? Did you know that? It may not feel like it when we're pinned to our smartphones, but we do have a choice. And so rather than being taught what is wise by what's on social media or what's on cable news or what's on the New York Times bestseller list, you choose your diet wisely. You begin with Scripture as the place of revelation where God's wisdom is to be found and known. And then you move from Scripture 
into the goodness of God's creation and to the love of learning whatever is good and true because it comes from God. And in the circumstances of your life, you look to the counsel of those who have learned wisdom through experience and you rely upon their knowledge to get you through. This leads us to the fourth and final and maybe the most important of all. Because without this, you're just a fool. You apply it. You apply it. In gazing wisdom, you put it to use. In hearing from Jesus, you obey. The life of wisdom is the Christ-centered life. The way we achieve wisdom is by praying for it first. And then by seeking it through revelation. And when we receive it, we apply it. There's only one path to the good life. That's what the Bible teaches. I, I, I know that is offensive in our culture. And I don't care. There's only one good life. And it's the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about him as the beginning of wisdom and its end. Those who seek him are wise. All others are otherwise. Amen.